Kia ora everyone, I'm Dalkara and you're listening to Untamed Aotearoa, a podcast that celebrates the outdoor community and wilderness areas of New Zealand. In this show I introduce you to a diverse range of inspiring New Zealanders who love the outdoors. We'll be covering themes linked to adventure, well-being, conservation and the professional outdoor scene in New Zealand. Live your dreams, be wild and free Ain't no need to explain them to me You can run to the mountains or run to the sea Just live your dreams, be wild and free I'd like to give a big shout out to the Federated Mountain Clubs of New Zealand for sponsoring this episode. In 1931, visionary members from a few tramping clubs came together to create FMC. The goal was to celebrate a common value, the freedom of the hills. Initially, it was more about tramping and mountaineering, but in recent years, they've started to represent a much more diverse group of us, from cavers, paragliders and hang gliders, to packrafters and amateur adventure racers. FMC is the voice of New Zealand's outdoor people. When required, FMC also advocates for freedom of access to New Zealand's incredible mountains and the protection of our wild lands for everyone to enjoy. In each episode, I'll be sharing something about FMC that links in with the interview. FMC relies on the outdoor community to keep doing what it's doing. So if you want to lend a hand, visit fmc.org.nz join and become a supporter. The Federated Mountain Clubs of New Zealand sponsors the New Zealand Mountain Film Festival to support the shared vision of inspiring and empowering the outdoor community through storytelling and sharing experiences. FMC's support of the festival enables Kiwi schools to access a 45-minute selection of festival films for free. If your school wants to get the films, register online at fmc.org.nz slash mountainfilm. But FMC also has its own channels for storytelling. If you've ever been to a hut in New Zealand, chances are you've come across a well-read copy of FMC's Backcountry magazine. First produced in 1957, these little A5 bulletins form the backbone of many hut libraries around Aotearoa, and they're just as much part of the hut culture as the hut logbook. FMC encourages contributions to their magazine but there's often too much great content to ever fit in one issue. So they began their Wilder Life blog in 2016, as well as a widely eclectic blog of stories from across the whole outdoor community. Wilder Life has an online copy of FMC's Safety in the Mountains manual, which has been in print since 1937. There is also an outdoor community section aimed at clubs and groups, with resources for running club events, as well as tons of advice for keeping on the right side of the law for many of the legal issues. Hiring gear, renting vans for club trips, liability of trip leaders, and so on. Check out wilderlife.nz contribute to add your two cents. I'll include that link in the show notes to this episode as well. Mark Seddon is the kind of guy who doesn't talk about himself a lot. He's one of those understated but highly competent Kiwi adventurers 
with an incredible amount of experience and a very diverse skill set. He calls Lake Howe a home and has spent the majority of his adult life combining creative work with ski guiding in some of the most remote and interesting parts of the world. In between outdoor trips, he keeps busy organising the New Zealand Mountain Film and Book Festival in Wanaka, which he and his wife Jo have been running for the past 19 years. It's Mark's diverse skill set that somewhat serendipitously landed him a place on an epic self-propelled expedition in Antarctica a few years ago. The Spectre expedition was dubbed the most audacious and potentially groundbreaking polar expedition in a generation. Along with Leo Holding and Jean Burgun, Mark used kites and skis to access and explore a region previously beyond the reach of independent expeditions. The Spectre is in the Gothic range of the Transantarctic Mountains. An expedition like this had never been attempted before, and it represented the very cutting edge of 21st century exploration. This expedition became a real focus in the episode, but first we hear more about Mark's adventure background, including the evolution of his passion for adventure, how his career unfolded, and some wonderful insights into the New Zealand Mountain Film and Book Festival. Sweet. Cool. Well, welcome, Mark, to Untamed Aotearoa. Thanks very much. <laughs> nice, to, nice to be talking to you. I'm pretty curious. I guess you've had such a nomadic lifestyle for the past few years. Is this the longest stretch you've spent in New Zealand for a while? Yeah, uh, ticking over, I think it was March 18th. It was the first time I'd spent a year in New Zealand uh, since I was 20, uh, 21, so 30 years. Wow, that's pretty crazy to think, hey? Yeah, yeah, it's quite cool actually. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm actually enjoying it. It's, um, it's nice just to, to look closer to home for a while. Have there been some kind of unexpected adventures or new skills you've been developing as a result of being in New Zealand? Um, I think the main thing is, is just, yeah, I don't think I've been doing any big adventures in New Zealand, more just small things that everyone else has been doing for all this time and I always miss out on because I'm on my way working somewhere. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like went and rode the old ghost road a couple of weeks ago. That was just amazing. And, you know, on the other side, I went to a music festival and danced for a couple of days. So, you know, kind of opposite things that don't really get to do that often. Yeah. It's interesting for a lot of people, there have been these extra sort of silver linings or, you know, even delving into creative activities that they normally don't have time for and things like that. Yeah, 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 for sure. And I sort of look at being locked in New Zealand as a, as a bit of a first world problem. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's there's lots to do here, and we've got there's lots of positives that come out of it if you if you think the right way. Yeah, I'm curious. You know, I don't really know your background as a kid growing up. How did you sort of first get into adventures as a young person? Um, I guess <clears throat> at the very beginning, when I was four, and my brother was one, and my mum was twenty two, and my father was twenty five. They they took all of us to the Europe for a year and bought a camper van and lived in that and traveled around Europe. So it was probably born into me right back then um, with very young parents keen to travel. That's awesome. Um, You know, it's interesting that's something that we take for granted as Kiwis often, the sort of willingness to take an extended break away from normal life or the kind of the normal life that most people call normal life. Yeah. And, you know, compared to some countries and cultures, we're, we're 
I like the way we're encouraged to. You know, it's you're not sort of a strange person for taking a year off and going travelling. You you're kind of the almost the norm. Totally, yeah. Um, if there's a gap in your CV for a couple of years where you haven't had a full time job, no one no one questions you about it. It's kind of no. celebrated. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and then just growing up as a kid, I guess you know, mum and dad never had a lot of money, so we'd always just go on camping holidays and just we had a little pop top camper van and we'd just take off to various spots and my brother and I would go play in the in the dirt and the rivers and the trees and, and mum and dad would hang out with their friends. So it just grew up in, in the outdoors and I guess we got home from school there was there was no T V allowed. It was, you know, go outside and play cricket in the street or basketball or just yeah, stay outside until dinner time. Mm-hmm. And what part of New Zealand were you growing up in? It very really Christchurch for quite a while until I was 12 and then the family moved to Auckland um, on the North Shore up there so it's actually people love to mock Auckland but but the shore was, was an amazing time back then we used to run down to the beach at lunchtime and have a swim and you know, just play cricket in the streets and just hang out hang out by the water or, or by the parks. Mm-hmm. Nice and then as like a teenager or young adult you, you clearly, from what I understand, got like heavily involved in alpine sports from right when you were a young adult. Yes, um, a friend took me skiing when I was a neighbour. Actually, took me skiing when I was fifteen, and uh, I was probably getting into a little bit of trouble by that stage. And it gave me a focus to get away from the the other things I was getting into. So I really just focused on the skiing, and everything I did from that point on was to. You know, I got a job in the supermarket packing groceries and I, I just saved and worked to go skiing and, and pretty much came, that was my passion from then on and saved and, and I left school, worked two jobs for a few years until I was 21 and took off to be a ski bum in, in Canada for a winter. And in terms of, I'm kind of curious with the ski, the ski industry, you know, because that's something that, you know, people are still doing today. 20 year olds are still kind of ski bums but the culture is really different and the way that you can travel and move around the world perhaps not in COVID times but pre-COVID how have you seen the ski industry kind of develop over your time involved in skiing? Um, I think it's it's gone a really good direction uh, when, when we did it you couldn't get a work visa for Canada or Europe or anywhere so we went and you know washed dishes working under the table in Banff <laughs> um, and it, now people can get a work visa for a year and go and work at the ski resorts or work in a bar or restaurant and, and earn decent money. Uh-huh. So it's really cool because it, it means you don't have to save so much to go on a, an OE. You can take a work visa and go somewhere and work for a bit. Totally, arrive with it, a couple of hundred bucks in your pocket and you're okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, the only place we could get a work visa was England. And if you had a thousand pounds, I think it was, and you arrived in London, they'd give you a work visa. and I had about 25 pounds and looked the customs guy in the eye and said, yes, sir, I've got a thousand. And he stamped me a work visa and in I went. <laughs> yeah. Nice. And for you, was it, was your first introduction to real powder skiing overseas or did you find some in New Zealand? Um, I actually went heli skiing when I was 18. I did a one run off the back of Mount Hutt and I couldn't ski it to save myself. So, <laughs> so I, didn't know, I didn't know what it was. Um, so really, yeah, found the powder snow in the winter in Canada and then a couple of winters in Austria and, yeah, learnt, learnt to ski powder and enjoy that, that side of skiing, which really is the, the roots of it, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and then has your 
I guess it's interesting to think about your professional life because to me it's a bit of a jigsaw of, of different activities, you know, linking creative things with technical outdoor activities. Has it mostly centred around ski guiding, the outdoor work? Um, it's changed a lot. When I was uh, in Canada, actually, I got arrested for skiing in a closed area and we, we took off from the ski patrol and tried to get away from them. We got caught and taken to court and I was really intrigued by the ski patrollers. I thought, wow, that's a cool job. You get to chase people and blow stuff up. So when I came back to New Zealand, I did the courses and ended up working on Turo as a ski patroller. And I, I did sort of 18 winters of snow safety work and ski patrolling, and that got me really focused on avalanches and learning about those. And, and that sort of led into ski mountaineering, so I learned more mountaineering, and eventually that got me into the sort of guiding pathway. And, uh, yeah, a big drive for... Um, doing a guide qualification was I wanted to work in Antarctica and that was the best qualification for it. So yeah, I mm-hmm. went down that path to get qualified and uh, yeah, I was going to work for Scott Base back then, but then I realised you could actually go there and go climbing and go skiing. So I, yeah, so that was quite cool. I just, um, yeah, and just so it progressed through dishwashing to ski patrolling to, to guiding and, and I was always not bad with a computer and, and that's sort of, through the guiding and on expeditions, you know, I'd be doing all the, using the sat phones and little PDAs and sending out dispatches and and that kind of got Guy Cotter's attention and he offered me a job working in the office um, as his expedition planner, which, which morphed into operations manager. And so I just sort of kept learning all the way through all my career, just trying to, you know, do a qualification then look at what else I can learn and just keep trying to, learn new things and just see where it takes you really. Mm -hmm. Yeah it's interesting when you consider you know the diversification of experiences and skills versus being more specialist in one area and how they both open up opportunities that are quite different. Yeah definitely and you know I look back to when I was in my early 20s and late teens you just don't have any life skills and uh, as as things go wrong and you spend more time I think as you get older, you get all these life skills which go with your qualifications and your experience and uh, help help you sort of into that outdoor role. You know, I remember leaving school and had no idea what I wanted to do and I was quite worried about it at the time. And you look back now and it's like, well, it didn't really matter too much. Totally, yeah. And in terms of all the creative side of things, is that something that you've always been drawn to or has that come a little bit later in life? It's probably a little bit later in life and, you know, I was on Rapay, I was doing a bit of ski modelling, which was a bit of a laugh and, and I broke my back in an avalanche up near Mount Cook and decided that um, it'd be better off taking the photos than being in them. So that's what led me to the photography and, and starting to take photos and I, I kind of, I don't know, I seem to have an eye for it. I didn't really do any training. I just um, seemed to pick it up and get some good photos and started selling photos and Again, that photography led into the filming, which which you know, is, goes hand in hand with the film festival a bit as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of people listening will probably be aware of the New Zealand Mountain Film Festival, but not really have any idea of the culture or the history behind it. It'd be sweet to get a bit of background on, you know, like how yeah. how it began and what what the motivation was. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to believe what it is now from when the start. Um, yeah, I was rock climbing in Escalade uh, in Blue Mountains in, a, in Australia, and went to this festival called Escalade, which is a mountain film festival there, and must have been two thousand and one or something. And uh, yeah, thought, oh wow, Wanaka could do with a festival like that. So 
came back and set up this we called it the free spirit festival and we got i think it was 12 speakers over a long weekend and um probably people that you've had on your show um and then they were just all doing slideshows and one of the speakers couldn't get in because a flight was cancelled and so we put on a film and it was in october actually and it was a beautiful weekend and but lots of people came along and supported it but it was like well it's a beautiful weekend and these films look really good so why don't we change it to a film festival and have it in in autumn when it's much nice weather for watching movies and back then it was i was introducing them i'd go back behind the curtain and push play on the vhs and and to go and dim the lights and joe my wife would be collecting the money at the door in an ice cream container and getting people to their seats and it was all very her and i pretty much doing everything um and slowly that morphed and grew and i think it was 2012 we um encouragement from the qldc to turn it into a charitable trust and then we register it as a charity and then it's become bigger than just us it's um, we have a board of trustees and you know we have a it's still run it pretty cheaply it's probably a two hundred thousand dollar a year budget to run the festival um and that we just have lots of different people help us now we have projectionists and we have i have a marketing team and we have um accountants and yeah it's it's much more still small but it's uh we spread out the tasks a lot more and uh yeah these days it takes me six months of my year to organize the festival and which which mixes really well with my ski guiding and, and so i can sort of do work wherever in the world i am which is quite handy yeah that's such an amazing balance to have and it's interesting when you think about the technology because it has changed so much but the essence of people coming together face to face has remained the same and is probably even more valuable now than it was when you started yeah and you know you hear when someone's watched a movie and the lights come on you just hear the the buzz in the crowd and everyone talking about it and interacting and you know people go away from the festival i love the way they have motivated people get from the festival and it still motivates me uh, mm -hmm. to see what other people are doing and meet people that have been doing stuff and hear their stories and read about it and yeah it's, it's quite in terms of like the films that are submitted that's something i'm fascinated about because 20 years ago i mean the technology was different and there was just far less content and video out there yeah how how do you how have, would you describe the evolution of the adventure film industry through the kinds of films that you have submitted um the big change for me and what is this is the 19th year this year um the films were a bit of a specialized group doing them in the beginning with the right equipment uh, editing studios and you know and and these days it can be someone from next door shooting with his iphone and a gopro and a editing on his laptop so just the technology has made it so much easier for anyone to make a film and i think with the different camera evolutions that's really helped too from you know you remember your old vhs cassette recorder um and going through to you know the introduction of gopros and and then drones and now these cameras called 360s um and then the needing a big computer to edit and now, now it's getting easier and the software is much cheaper so um more accessible yeah, think, yeah yeah definitely more accessible um you still get a lot of bad films made um, <laughs> yeah. not wanting to disrespect anyone's work but but you know you, you also get some really good ones and uh yeah, it's yeah you know, i think we get about 250 films in each year and we we probably play one in five of those films at the festival so 
we, wow. we do leave out a lot of a lot of people's hard work unfortunately but sometimes you know you just can't watch somebody that something you can show your friend on your laptop on a big screen totally yeah yeah i find it really fascinating i must admit for me personally like i remember going to the bamp film festivals years ago and being really inspired and as time went on i found myself a little bit less inspired and i'm not sure if that was because i had more personal experiences so they seemed less novel or if it was just because of the saturation of the kind of more superficial style of adventure stories that were going around for a while yeah i can see that for sure i mean i see that when we're watching films and you, you watch a film that's just done on the standard, you know, this standard s- style where there's something goes wrong, there's emotion, someone cries, they get that, you know, it's kind of becomes a bit of a boring <laughs> sequence. And then you see a film that's just off the cuff and natural. And, uh, you know, I'm always watching the films and going, you know, how they're filming this. Is there a film crew or are they film it themselves? Yeah. And I, I take a bit of joy from working at how they do it as well as watching the adventure. And uh, I get a bit a bit, top, a bit tired of everyone trying to do first. You know, if no one's ever done this on a Tuesday. You know, just people making a film and not worrying about whether it's the first or a first ascent or a new route or it's just something fun. Mm-hmm. And can you normally tell when you're watching the films what ones, you know how you can kind of plan a story or a film before you even go out there and do a trip versus freestyling when you're out there and then developing the story when you're back? Yeah, you can actually. And, you know, an example of that is actually our Spectre film that we made from Antarctica. We had the adventure planned, but we didn't have the film planned. <laughs> so we filmed lots of it and and just let the story evolve. It's hard to do that sometimes, but we had time and we had the willingness of everyone on the trip to, to film it. So I think it depends on what the outcome is. You know, some people don't want technology with them on an expedition. Some people realise that without the technology, they wouldn't be on the expedition. So like the Spectre film, yeah, we had to make a film. That was why we were there. That's how Leo Holding, he raised the 300,000 US dollars for the trip. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone was happy with that. But I know sometimes you go on a trip and you pull out a camera and some people are like, oh, you know, leave the camera in the bag, will you? Or <laughs> they're not so in- into it. Such an interesting thing to balance for people in the adventure world these days. And just the expectations or affiliations with brands or sponsorship and how that can add lots of positives, but then also put this weight on your shoulders. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's really subtle ways to do that and very unsubtle ways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of the big brands are pretty unsubtle with their brand placement. Um, and then there's some good ones. So it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely too, I really enjoy, we, we introduced a new award this year for the New Zealand entrance uh, grassroots awards uh, it's just people filming without a plan just, you know no budget no money mm-hmm. and a little a film comes out of it so just to try and encourage that natural storytelling more than yeah sort of form, formal that's awesome i guess that's a, a cool way segue into talking about the antarctic expedition mark i think for me something that's really special is you know, taking something like the Mount New Zealand Mountain Film Festival and seeing what action can come out of it from people, whether it's the yeah. inspiration or an idea or actually meeting people. Um, yeah. It seems pretty serendipitous, or maybe not serendipitous, and <laughs> how you ended up on the Spectre expedition. Oh, very. And, uh, yeah, so, so Leah Holden was out 
I've been trying to get him to speak at our festival for probably 10 years and he always wanted, you know, a set fee and we could never afford it. And then that year we just decided we'd stump up and pay the fee and, and got him out here. And, you know, he's always good at it. He's a really good speaker. And he said, you know, look around to people in the room, the guy next to you could be off on a trip, you know, chat to people, find out what they're doing and, and you know, network with these people. And he, he gave a really good talk at our festival and everyone loved it. And uh, afterwards, we were just having a beer. Actually, we, we got on really well. We had all we met before. Actually, in Yosemite, we were both climbing years and years ago. I was a climbing, he was free climbing. And then I'd had a beer with him in Europe, trying to talk him into coming a few years later. And then, yeah, so he was here and he's doing a talk. And he, he and we're having this beer, and his phone rang and he answered it. And he was chatting to his mate who was coming to film the Spectre trip with him. And they were going at the end of the year. So this is in July, and they were leaving in November. And his mate, his father just got diagnosed with cancer. So he said, oh, you know, his, his friend couldn't come. And he chatted for a while and got off the phone. And he was just sort of ghostly white going, oh, my God, how am I going to find someone who can who can ski, who can kite ski, who can climb, who can shoot video, take photos um, with Antarctic experience, who can handle the cold, handle the electronics, medical experience. Um, he's got two months free and doesn't mind not getting paid and I was like oh, I could go <laughs> what about me and he, he just looked at me <laughs> and thought for a minute and he goes all right you're in <laughs> was that did it happen quite that that fast in the end it did but I said to him you know you know I was I'm 10 12 years older than him and I'd broken my back in a helicopter crash you know a year before and I said why don't you go home and see if you can find someone younger and you know more qualified and that you know better and so he went away and and he called me up like a month later and goes, no, you're it. You're, I can't find anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> no one's as cheap and as experienced. <laughs> <laughs> it, seems, it seems that you're, the fee for Leo's speaking really paid off for you in the end, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, it did. <laughs> um, then when he said you're in, then I said, oh, give me a week to think about it. <laughs> and I went through phases of, you know, going, yeah, I'm going to go. And then I'd go through sheer panic and what am I doing? <laughs> or phases when I didn't want to go and, and eventually Joe said to me, um, you know, you can't not go. You know, you've been training for this all your life and it's everything that's involved is what you do. And, mm-hmm. and so I rang him up and said, yeah, I'm in. So, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Well, I'm keen to hear a bit more about what your decision making was like when you were pondering it. What was it that was making you hesitant exactly? Um, I think it was, I'd, so I'd never actually towed a polk or one of those sleds with a kite before. Um, I hadn't used any of the climbing gear they were given, so it was climbing boots, ski boots. I hadn't actually walked on skis towing the polk. Yeah. Um, you know, what you see people doing walking to the South Pole. Um, didn't really know the guys. Um, and it was two months away from home. It was a long trip. So I wasn't yeah. actually sure what would happen not having a shower for two months as well. <laughs> <laughs> you can ski all that powder and be afraid about not showering. <laughs> I know. I, I said that to another friend. He goes, tough it up. It's the least of your worries. <laughs> so, and, you know, not knowing the guys, going on a potentially high-stress, very difficult trip um, and not knowing these guys at all was, yeah. was a little bit weighing on my mind. But end of the day, there was way more positives than negatives. Um, and I knew, you know, I'm not, I'm not the strongest climber. I'm not going to be the fittest guy, but I knew that I had more kite skiing experience and just general mountaineer experience and the other guys and more cold experience you know i've done 
five trips to climb Vincent Massif, the, the highest peak in Antarctica, when it's often minus 40, 50 on summit day. Mm-hmm. So, so I sort of knew I could handle everything, maybe just not as fast as the others. Yeah. Do you want to just share a bit of an overview of what the trip actually was for someone who has yeah. never heard of it and has never been to Antarctica? Yeah, of course, yeah. Leo Holding is a well-known British climber and Jean Bergeon is a French, he was in the French Alpine climbing team. They put together this trip to go and climb a mountain called the Spectre and it's sort of touted as one of the most remote mountains on the planet. And to get to this mountain, um, you have to fly down from Chile to a Union Glacier camp, which is a commercial, um, basically ice runway in Antarctica. And then from there, the idea was to fly out in a twin otter to a fuel cache, refuel, and then fly out until the plane was half out of tap gas and land and get dropped there. And that was the closest we could get to the mountain. That was about 450 kilometers away. And this was about 150 kilometers from the South Pole at 3,000 meters in altitude. Mm-hmm. And what the Americans do is they drag fuel up a road from the Ross Ice Shelf to the South Pole Station to their base there. And they groom a track through this area called the Sestruga National Park. And so Leo's plan was to get onto this road and kite ski through all this really rough Sestruga to the mountain, or drop off the road, get into the mountain, climb this mountain via the, I think it was the north face. It was a very big wall, probably seven or 800 meters high, big granite mountain. Walk back up. It's been about a month walking back up the Scott Glacier and back up to the drop-off point, back along that road, back to where we got dropped off, pick up some food cash, and then kite ski uh, 1,100 kilometers back across Antarctica to the other side, back to the Union Glacier camp. Um, so it was going to take about two months, and we had about 190 to 200 kilos of equipment each of food and fuel and camera gear and climbing gear. And the idea was to use kites to travel. Um, and the difference between what what hadn't actually been done before is is the upwind tacking with big loads. So we didn't know whether we could tack into the wind and go forward faster than we could just walking. And people have used kites to try and get to the pole before and to get from the pole, but they just used them. They had their route and they just used them whenever they could, but not really high efficiency kite skiing with with good boots and good skis and good kites. Mm -hmm. There's not many places you can go and practice that out the back door, are there? (laughs) No, but actually the Pisa range between Wanaka and Queensland is one of the best. True, Um, yeah. It's really world-class kite skiing up there. Um, So yeah, we got dropped off in mid-November at 3,000 metres near the South Pole and uh, it was minus 35 when we stepped out of the plane and we got about six hours after we got off the um, plane a storm hit for four days and 40 knot winds and it was minus 60 to 65 wind chill and uh yeah it was so cold you could feel the uh the liquid on your eyes freezing between blinks wow (laughs) what were you thinking at that point um by that point we were in it, we had no choice. When we, the plane was about to take off, I went through a little stage of panic, started sweating, going, what am I doing? But by that point, I was actually loving it. I love being out in, the, in those elements. And, you know, we had all the right gear and we had good sleeping bags. And it was quite stressful, but straight away we all got on well and we laughed about it and we joked. And 
yeah. pretty much if the tent ripped, we're, we're pretty much going to die. <laughs> and, you know, it's pretty hard conditions to be in, and, but we made light hard of it. And, you know, you're cooking up with white spirits, and if you had a flare-up and you melt the tent, then yeah. there's a good chance you're going to die. So, Man, humour is so important in teammates, hey? Oh, it is. That, that, was, that was the de-stressor for that whole trip was, uh, you know, we'd sometimes we'd battle, just fight and fight and fight and get 10 or 12 kilometres in a day and just put up a tent, just completely exhausted and crawl into the tent and get out of the wind. And it wasn't too cold in the tent. And then you'd start laughing about the day and you'd <laughs> get your cold gear off and your wet gear off and have a cup of tea and and just joke with each other and, and laugh at each other. And it, it, it's such an important part of that not taking yourself too seriously and totally yeah and did you in terms of like sharing different tasks did you have did you share a lot of the tasks or did you take on different roles around camp? Uh, we took on roles actually yeah we had roles because my job was filming and so at the end of the day i had to charge the batteries and um, we had to back up all the sd cards to hard drives so i had a laptop and i was having to <laughs> defaul that up, 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 my, up under my under my jumper for it would run and then had all these batteries and we'd have to charge the cameras charge we'd gopros we'd all sorts of, a couple of drones a couple of cameras um so my, my whole job was the filming charging stuff um jean he was he was in charge of cooking and melting snow although we all helped with that but yeah he, that was his job and leo's was he was in charge of blogging and getting images and and text back to the to the world um, about the trip and where we were and how it was going and talking to sponsors and and yeah doing mm -hmm. that so we did have our jobs yeah it can be easy from people who haven't experienced like storytelling in an outdoor trip to totally underestimate the energy it takes to do that when you're out in the field yeah yeah it does and you know that's sometimes the last thing you want to do when you crawl into your tent late in the day and you're exhausted um, mm -hmm. but you know cup of tea and a little lie down and then you get into it. It doesn't get dark down there, so it actually feels like you've got lots of time in the day. Yeah, totally. It's interesting, you know, when you talk about that trip, it would be, I'd be quite keen to hear a bit more about a few specific days. You can have so many different emotions even in one day on a trip like that. Are there any days that really stand out for you as a day of like a crazy contrast between, you know, hunkering in a storm and then getting a lot done or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I guess there's there's quite a few days because it was such a long trip. It's probably not one day that all these different things happen. But yeah. you know, an example of one day is taking off with the big kites up and half of the day putting the smaller kites up, and then later in the day putting the very small kites up and kiting off down towards the mountain. We're sort of dropping down this little bit of terrain, and, and we come over this bulge, and there's all of a sudden this crevasses popping up, and it was like a little ice fall and the ice was as hard as, as concrete and basically the polk started sliding downhill of us, dragging us down this hill that you couldn't see down it. There's crevasses everywhere and the kites are pulling you down the hill as well and having to eject the kites and wind them all up and then try and ski your polk down between all these crevasses that if the polk goes in a crevasse, you're going in with it, there's nothing you can do about it and it's all going to be over. So be a really high stress day and get down off this little slope and you know walk for a couple of hours to find a little patch of powder snow on top of the ice put the tent on and 
and uh, you know crawling into the tent and just being absolutely exhausted and then and then coming out a few hours later and the, the winds eased and you can see the mountains that we're heading for and and just realizing that we'd got through this really difficult bit and we'd survived and we hadn't you know hadn't heard anything or lost anything and and just realizing where we are and it's sinking in of you know it's actually working even though it's hard we're actually getting to the mountain and every day was like that you just work and work and work and every day was hard it was a you know but it was fun hard it was type two fun <laughs> mm-hmm. it helps when you see that progress hey when you've got that view of where you're going and you know that you're making it closer even if it's really slow yeah exactly we did then get hit by a storm for four days and got stuck there but <laughs> these little moments of joy and, yeah and i guess another one you know when we left the mountain um you know, we were walking up the Scott Glacier and we're towing probably still 150, 160 kilos in our pulks. And we'd do about eight or nine kilometers a day of, and that was 10 hours of walking. And we, we got up to where the, the crevasses were a bit more filled in and the, there was a light wind coming down the glacier and we put the kites up and we tacked into the wind. And uh, we did 110 kilometers of tacking and we moved forward towards our goal, 35 kilometers. So, for us, that was a massive turning point. That was like, you know, and that's what no one had actually done down in Antarctica was trying to go to a certain place with heavy loads and kites. And we realized from that point on, there was absolutely no reason to walk anywhere because we can kite ski far more kilometers a lot easier than we can ever walking. So, you know, that day was a massive turning point for us. And we just realized that these high performance kites and we had like gs race skis you could edge into the wind and actually tack and like a yacht does tack up wind what kind of speed are you going at this point it's hard to say but normally probably 30 to 45 kilometers an hour Uh so quite fast but it would all depend on the surface um you know down there the surface was a variety of things sometimes it was Probably 10% of the time we had like a foot of powder and it was this beautiful smooth surface. And we had a couple of days like that where we did um, 200, 210 kilometers in a day. That's so wild, eh? <laughs> yeah, with, with those loads, it was phenomenal. And then other days it was like this wind etched snow that's like, you see the sand at the beach is all undulating and wind etched. But it was like those etchings were a meter high and they were wooden hard. So you'd tap on the snow and it felt like wood and you're trying to ski over these things and you're going quite slow because it felt like one of those things was just going to rip your leg off in a different direction. And then if you went too fast, you felt like if you crashed, the pulk was just going to end up running you over like a speed bump. Um, And so that was a really horrible texture that we came across quite often. And then there's the ice and and because the wind blows down there so hard, it doesn't snow much. It snows about half a meter a year. So you've got this ice that's been polished by Antarctic winters for thousands of years, and it's it's like a mixture of glass and concrete. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds terrible. <laughs> it was, and it's noisy, and it's hard, and it, it feels like you're just going to die if you fall over. <laughs> um, wow. And then so we had all these different things, but then when we got on this uh, road, the um, road from the Ross Ice Shelf to the South Pole, we had a couple of days on this road, so Leo and I'm just going off on a tangent here. I hope it's all That's right. all good. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. 
Leo had planned this route through the, like I said, through the Sestruga National Park to use the road the Americans made with their groomers. And we turned up to this road and and, and there were all the grooming team and the Americans towing their millions of gallons of fuel up this road. And we come skiing from the South Pole and, and they just couldn't believe that someone what were had come the chances? from where we did. That's crazy. <laughs> did you feel like rock stars? A little bit, but <laughs> felt like aliens too, because these guys were in sort of big American guys and they had a, they towed a pretty much an apartment block with heating and, you know, it was a massive industrial operation and they were in their t-shirts inside this thing and we we're at minus 40 outside it. Um, but what it did after we, because they use explosives and diggers and fill in the crevasses and groom this piece to drag the fuel up and down. Um, so, you know, here's us picking up every little bit of rubbish and here's these guys, you know, building this road. And uh, so we, but what happened is after they passed, we got onto this road and it was a three cat width wide groomed piste. And, and we just blasted down this road at high speed, uh, which is just incredible. We did 150 kilometers um, on this road. And on the way back, we thought we we're going to have to walk up that road because the winds come from the pole generally. But when we got back to the road, the winds were coming at a 90 degree angle to the road. And Leo and John have been watching the, the winds on windy for years and it, the winds never blew that direction and so we just quickly got our kites out packed up our cash we left there and got on this road and we thought it was going to take us 10 days to walk back to our drop-off point on this road and we did it in about 12 or 13 hours and just blasted up this road and got back so we all of a sudden were after being behind our schedule we hoped it would take us about eight or nine days to get to the mountain it took us 20 and we thought it might take us 20 to get back and it took us eight. So all of a sudden we we're ahead of our schedule, which is, is amazing. Man, it's, it's hard to even comprehend how you plan a schedule for a trip like that. It just, it's like pulling numbers from the sky almost. Yeah, well, I guess Leo had it four stages. There was the getting to the mountain that we hoped to kite ski. I think he allowed two weeks for that. There was four weeks of climbing two weeks to walk back to the drop-off and two weeks to kite ski back to the beginning. Might not quite have those links right, but yeah, there was, he had a bit of a rough block and what he had to do was pay a hundred thousand US dollars for a rescue bond. So if we didn't get back to the Union Glacier in time, they were going to fly and pick us up because we were using the whole summer season down there and they couldn't leave us there obviously for the winter. Yeah, man, that's that's interesting, <laughs> having that on your mind. Yeah, so we had to actually make sure we finished the trip while we're there climbing. And, you know, it was a bit of a weight on your shoulders climbing this mountain where you felt really, really remote. It's pretty cool when you have distinct chapters to a trip, hey? It's like psychologically you can break it down more easily and then you have that slight change in pace or activity that almost feels like a new adventure starts. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's like a fresh start. Um, yeah, and early on in the trip when we weren't getting very far, the, it was quite mentally tough because we knew we had so far to go and we were only doing about a quarter of the distance we wanted. And that was a real test and just working on the now in the next few hours, not worrying about tomorrow or, or 30 days' time. It was... Um, yeah, which you do a lot when you're climbing big mountains. And I think, um, you know, I am used to doing that. And, and so it wasn't too bad. You just 
you just put the rest of the trip out of your mind and uh, yeah, fix the problems, do what you can today. <laughs> and in terms of what you're thinking about on that trip, Obviously, I, I assume that you would have been present where you were a lot of the time, but there must have been moments when you were thinking about life back home or other things other than Antarctica as well. Yeah, I had a little inreach actually. So I was texting home most days, which was great just to keep in touch. Um, and that, that helps, you know, when you're away on a long trip like that. Yeah. You know, Leo had a three-year-old and a one-year-old. So, you know, and John had young kids too. So pretty cool to be able to go away and, and keep in touch with people um, you know it definitely doesn't make you feel quite so isolated even though you are yeah that's interesting hey it's like as far as a rescue goes or getting out of where you are you are very isolated but yeah you well, feel we, less vulnerable we, we had a, yeah and you know we we knew the rescue plan which i should tell you about because <laughs> um, if one of us it was such a high chance of you know, twisting your knee or breaking a leg, kite skiing and that stuff. And so when we're down by the mountain, the only way they could rescue us was they'd have to fly a fuel cache out, go back, refuel, fly out, pick up some of that fuel cache, fly it out, another tank load of fuel, fly back, refuel, fly back to the base, fill the plane, fly out to the first cache, refuel, fly out to the second cache, refuel, fly out and get us or drop a skidoo team off to come and get us if they couldn't land near us and then fly back to the two caches. So it was going to take a week or 10 days. Wow. Uh, so you couldn't just hit an EPU and get picked up that afternoon. It was going to be a week to 10 days. That sounds like an advanced question and like a maths test as a teenager, working out how much fuel yeah. and how much time it would take the rescue to happen. Yeah, exactly. And that's what it reminded me of, actually. You, you do those little things, don't you? <laughs> totally, yeah. Is this uh, feasible? How much money will it take? <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah so yeah definitely we didn't want to hurt ourselves and, and it's probably why we backed off the the big wall the the you know the the main face on the specter which is this big granite face um there was just too much ch chance for injury we we, we climbed a, an easier route around the other side um but we just didn't have the good weather to get up on a big wall with no portal edges and you know spend a week on a wall when Pretty much we're at the mountain every six hours the weather would change from snowing to windy to sunny um, um so yeah we're just being really careful it's interesting at that point i get the feeling that the summit must have just been like it would have felt like quite a different summit goal compared to a lot of the trips you do yeah it you know that like you said the it was a it's a different phase. So we got to the mountain, had a day off eating pancakes and lying around and enjoying it. And then we sort of stood up and dusted ourselves off and sort of started a new part of the expedition. But it was definitely weighing on your mind that you had 1,100 kilometres to go to get home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, trip's not over. Actually, it was 1,500 kilometres from the mountain to get home, yeah. <laughs> and in terms of the technology that you used on that trip, I mean, both in terms of communication and and technical outdoor equipment. We, I'm, you know, a few decades ago, that trip wouldn't have been possible based on equipment. I'm well, clearly, what what were the key yeah. things that made this trip possible? To you know, in 2018, that would have been wouldn't have been possible a decade earlier. I think it's the weight of stuff. You know, even though we had 200 kilos each, 
you know, the, the weight of the gear, um, you know, the reliability of it as well. We, we had stuff to repair pretty much anything. Um, but just trying to, you know, the advances of stuff, obviously the, the cameras and the computers and the batteries and all that stuff, the drones, um, but the stuff we're using clothing wise, nothing that advanced, you know, it's down. So we had like Everest down suits on and down mittens and ski boots that were three sizes too big with, um, big, big liners in them. So yeah, there's not a lot there that's, that's super new that the kites is probably the main thing that even 10 years ago weren't high performance enough. And the kites we had were very high end, almost like a racing kite. Um, and having the GS racing skis allowed us to a combination of edging and ski stiffness to, to kite size. And it's hard to explain, but the, the more high performance the kite, the higher in the window they go, which allows you to go more into the wind. Um, and the, the kites of 10 years ago, you could probably only just go across the wind or if not maybe even slightly into it but yeah so if you think of that as 90 degrees the kites probably went 91 or 92 whereas the kites now probably go almost 120 degrees into the wind it's, it's quite different yeah I guess that opens up a lot of large areas on all of the ice caps that would have just otherwise been impossible to go to travel and travel around by kite yeah yeah and that's pretty cool being able to use kites to go to a mountain to climb it um, and you know I've often thought about if you could have one good kite skier and just have one or two people tied in behind being towed along be quite <laughs> a good way to get to a mountain so that sounds like the <laughs> ultimate family holiday for Leo eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> yeah uh. Yeah, wow, man, it's crazy, hey. Do you, when you think about the future of RV exploration in Antarctic areas, do you see more of these sorts of trips happening? I guess finances is finances are just insane, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, yeah, three hundred thousand dollars US it costs for our trip. Um, it is the problem down there is the money. It's so expensive to get there. Um, kites definitely opening up some stuff. You know, Greenland and. Um, various other places around the world, but they suit the flat snowy surface and then you can travel big kilometers. Um, and just with our trip, you know, I, I often think back and, and, and sort of can't believe we pulled it off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, it's unbelievable that we did when you, th we think about the things that could have gone wrong or the things that did go wrong. Um, it's, I often think just, and Leo and I see a message each other going, you know, do you believe we actually pulled that off? Because <laughs> you know, he said to me a few times, the other guy that was going to come with him and film it, he goes, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have coped. He wouldn't have survived. He would have hurt himself because he hadn't done that much kite skiing and wasn't that aware of the, how to act in the cold. And you know, he's uh -huh. like, it was a, it was a godsend that he didn't come. You must have had so many laughs about the fact that you came on last minute and it just worked out so well, hey? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you do read about a lot of polar trips like this. You know, there's a Peter Hillary one and Eric Phillips where no one got on and they all hated each other and yeah. they all fell out. And I think the majority of long trips like that, the people don't really get on that well. I think it's probably 75% of the time. Mm. And our trip, 
you know, we were all best of mates at the end. And and that was where Leo actually, it's it's really important. At the end of the day, there's a bit of stress from something. You know, I would get tired after nine or 10 hours of, of kiting and I'd be like, you know, I need to stop or else I'm going to hurt myself. And sometimes John would be like, you know, he'd be like, oh, I'm not tired and let's keep going. And, and I'd be like, sorry, I've got to stop. And it became a little bit of a stress point, but we'd get into the tent and Leo would make a joke about it and we'd all laugh about it. And the, the diffusing of stress, I think, was such a key thing for our trip um, mm -hmm. and that ability to do it. And Leo was really good at that. He'd be like, don't worry about that. Let's do this. Or, you know. That's fascinating. It's such a subjective thing in an expedition group, but you can feel it immediately when it's there, hey? Yeah. And he had a classic saying, he goes, as long as we're all giving each other shit, then we know we like each other. It's when we start being nice to each other that we, uh, <laughs> we've got to worry. <laughs> yeah, that's good. So, so if everyone's being polite, then there's probably something not going right. <laughs> mm -hmm. And did you, um, oh, was that? Oh, I was just going to say, that's culturally different too, you know. If you're of the Americans, sometimes they, they don't like to be given too much shit or they don't know how to take it. <laughs> I've found that a lot. Totally, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting how many kind of miscommunications there can be where you just don't actually understand the intent of the communication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then the different films, you know, when there's an American film, there's always drama. And then when there's a European film, it's often very serious. And you know, <laughs> What about I, Kiwis? I hope, you know, I hope a lot of Kiwi films, you see the humour coming through. And I think we have a really good ability to cope with with tiring, stressful situations with a bit of humour. And, you know, I think Aussies are the same. I think, you know, you find when you're at places, you always get on well with Aussies and Kiwis because you know the humour. Um, and I think we have a very special humour that, to Americans, it, it seems very brutal, I reckon. I think <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so classic. I've, you yeah. know, worked with a lot of American students and I've spent a long time pondering this stuff. It's, it's fascinating, but it's just so subjective and, and difficult to explain. Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess... Yeah, and then all the... Technology. Sorry, all the European countries are a bit different. You know, their humour is all a bit different. But I think the Brits have got that, you know... They can laugh at themselves too, which I think is quite important to be able to laugh at yourself. Yeah. And for people, if they're keen to watch the, the Spectra film, where is the best place for them to do that? Um, I, I'm pretty sure Leo is still selling it through his website. He might have even listed it on YouTube for free now. Mm -hmm. I, I, I can't help you with that. That's all right. right I'll, now, sorry. I'll research that and I'll add it in at the end of the episode yeah. for people who are interested. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, the name is Spectre um, to the End of the Earth. So I think you've got to put in that to the end of the earth but to, mm -hmm. to come up with our film, whereas you come up with some James Bond thing. <laughs> wow, they're kind of the same, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> Different yeah. outfits. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking of those photos you had of you sitting on those epic seats. That could easily be out of yeah, Star Wars or James Bond. Or maybe it was well, a was Star that. Wars replica. <laughs> No, it was a uh, Game of Thrones. Oh, true. Uh, I, I've never watched it, but Leo said, "Let's make a throne like the Game of Thrones." Because, and we put the caption up of "Winter is coming." Uh, <laughs> That's so good. Which, yeah, which I haven't actually seen the Game of Thrones, but uh, it was apparently some series where things were getting dark. <laughs> I'm kind of interested in the parallels between 
you know, like exploration around the world and then bringing it back to New Zealand. Do you see, like when you think of world-class exploration in New Zealand now, what do you think of? Um, yeah, I think world-class stuff is probably, you know, uh, some of our rock climbing that's been done in New Zealand these days is pretty world-class. Um, you know, with, with everyone doing stuff in New Zealand, I think, you know, we have world-class athletes, you know, from anything from rock climbing to white water to, to mountaineering. Um, but, you know, the, the, to push things in the mountaineering realm these days is, is so dangerous, I think. And, you know, New Zealand mountains are, are falling to pieces and the, the small windows for doing stuff in New Zealand, you know, winter's probably one of the best times. When everything's frozen together and there's ice. Um, but yeah, when I think of adventure in New, Ze- in New Zealand, you think or anywhere in the world? Um, I don't know. I was just curious either, really. It's something I often think of, you know, when you read books from the past around these big epic expeditions. They're always first and unique things and there's that uncertainty with it. And it's just interesting to consider if that still exists or if it's more about creativity or... Yeah, I think yes. I don't think that's such a big thing these days. I think it is more creativity. And, you know, an example here, I guess I went off and skied a peak at the end of Lake Hawaii a couple of winters ago that, you know, no one had ever skied before. And I think it's looking for little niches and little areas where you live more and more, I think, there's without the need of travelling too far. Yeah, totally. You mentioned that. Is that something that's on your mind a lot more these days? The sort of environmental impact of adventure? Yeah, I actually, I actually started carbon offsetting all my flights last year um, just to see, you know, what it would cost to, in the year before. So, I've, you know, I kind of think carbon offsetting should be a compulsory for all air flights these days. Um, if you can afford to travel, you can afford to carbon offset it. Now my, my flights to Europe for a job to carbon offset was $180 for you know Europe and back and you know I think you have to do stuff like that to to sort of justify it and I guess, I guess I've given up meat and dairy to sort of another little thing to it's not carbon but it stops methane and you know I was reading about how methane accounts for half of New Zealand's global warming emissions and it's just doing little things like that and you know if we all do something and just I think Craig Potton explained it to me years ago really well it's better to be an imperfect environmentalist than not do it because you can't be perfect and I think if we're just going to do what we can and I think it's going to come through educating the masses um, which you know New Zealand is a small place and we can do a little bit but we've got to get we've got to get the world to buy and we've got to get the big countries to 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 be doing it as well um, to make a difference. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. I remember you on Facebook. It might have been last year when you were doing a trial of eating vegan food for a month or something. I was curious. Yeah. I didn't actually realise you'd continued it. And at that point, it seemed like a really foreign concept. Just like, how do you plan your food? What should, What do we have? What yeah, options yeah. do we have? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. And yeah. a year and a half later, we're still doing it. How's it going? Like, how has... <laughs> That's- it's yeah. good. I really enjoy it, and it's good because my wife and I both do it. So we, 
basically have to throw out all your old cookbooks and buy new ones. <laughs> yeah. Just re- reinvent the way you cook. Uh-huh. Um, but we're, we're not super strict on it. You know, if we go out for dinner, we'll eat. We'll just be more vegetarian if we, you know, occasionally we'll buy a nice piece of fish until I, unfortunately, I watched a movie called Sea Spiracy the other oh, day. Which Yep, I haven't seen that yet. Just, it sounds awesome, hey? Oh, it's really good, but it's quite traumatizing. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's a really good message. So, you know, we're just really trying to choose things a bit more carefully and thinking about where things come from. And we do that festival for the last few years. We just choose things we sell in the cafe or the bar more carefully and buy things with less packaging. And, you know, just you just got to do little things to try and make a difference, I guess, and mm-hmm. you know, think about think about something. It always winds me up when I see people buying water bottles. Totally. <laughs> we have really good water. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what are the views of that kind of thing in the heliskiing industry? I'm kind of curious because that's like a lot of people who are in that industry are very conscious of their environmental impact. Yeah. There's like a bit of a yeah, clash there. Got, there is, but I actually curiously, I got a um, couple of different environmental scientists to work out the carbon imprint from heliskiing and uh-huh. You know, gave them all the fuel we used and all this sort of stuff. And if for eight people to go heli skiing with two guides and two pilots for the day, so so say ten people, um, to carbon offset that emission is is only fifty dollars or fifty one dollars for the day. Wow! Because the the helicopter is actually very clean burning. They don't use that much fuel. Um, so compare that to you know eating meat and dairy all year or or travel or trucks or it's it's not good but it's actually not as bad as you think it is totally i think helicopters have more noise pollution is probably more you know damaging Mm -hmm. to people's experience in the mountains but as far as carbon goes that they're not as bad as you would expect them to be it's pretty interesting i think there are a lot of assumptions made about what you know what activities or things are bad that can be inaccurate yeah, yeah, I mean, I think I read somewhere that one and a half percent of carbon emissions is from cloud storage. Wow! <laughs> you know, from from storing data, YouTube videos, and yeah, how many emojis do you use in your Facebook messages? <laughs> uh, I know. So, <laughs> I really wish we could get better information. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. it's like at school. I wish they taught me about diet, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you don't. You're trying to learn all these things as an adult, and it, I really have trouble. You know, I'm a bit of a skeptic for the news, and I'm a bit of a skeptic for what you read on on the internet. And it's really hard to know when you're getting right information. Yeah, it's getting harder and harder because you're kind of funneled down these pathways of people and news that is in line with your opinions and your community as well. Yeah, well, have you watched Social Looks? Um, yeah, yep. Yeah, I've done a lot <laughs> of research on that. Right? It's kind of scary, isn't it? Sometimes you're almost better off not knowing, being ignorant. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes and no. I, I like to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sweet, so, we should yeah. wind up shortly. Um, yeah. This has been awesome. That's oh, so, so fun. It's so fun just freestyling with people, Mark. It's, it's easy once yeah. you get chatting, yeah. eh? <laughs> You're, you're easy to talk to. That makes it, <laughs> yeah. that makes it easier. That's I don't generally good. talk a lot. So. <laughs> right, one thing I did write down was just about skiing the seven continents. Um, I'm just wondering what would be interesting or relevant about that. I mean, the thing that stuck out to me is that you know, I knew you'd ski the seven continents, but I had no idea you did it in one year. That's crazy. 
yeah, that was kind of accidental. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're all for work trips, and I was in Morocco about to go skiing, and I'm like, hang on, I left the Kashmir 363 <laughs> days ago. If we <laughs> ski today, uh... <laughs> so that was kind of random, but it's, I mean, that's, it's it's a cool adventure, and I think um, you know it's like the seven summits. Um, it's it's if you if you need some ideas of adventure, that there are great ones, but often people don't need those ideas to do their own adventures. Um, that was mm-hmm. a, that's a great thing to do. The you know skiing takes you on some great trips to places, and I always like to try and meet the locals when you go somewhere. And and skiing is really nice that to go somewhere and 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 ski with friends and meet the locals, and and that's what I like about skiing in those places. Totally, yeah. And then you sort of finish these outdoor trips and you, you get to try the local foods and things like that. Combine, you know, you're in a new place and you've come out of the mountains. It's like bonus. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, you, you bring a bit of money to the country. They're often poorer countries. You know, I work in Kashmir a lot in northern India. And, you know, you, you find, you take people there and they end up supporting families and putting kids through school. And, you know, you find that, the right sort of tourism can be sustainable and and good for the local people, as well as the people that are going there. So it's it's a it's a bit of a fine line between traveling the world and burning carbon to actually doing something good for somewhere where you go. Um, yeah, there's no perfect answer, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah, totally. Is there a spot that you've skied overseas where it's just like? epic you'd love to keep going back to or a favorite spot um i've got a few of those but antarctica is definitely one when you, you ski down to the beach and you stop for a minute and you see a whale swimming between an iceberg and then you ski down between a bunch of penguins to the beach <laughs> and get on the zodiac and go back to the boat yes yeah. it's sort of pinch me i'm dreaming sort of stuff yeah um, it sounds to me like you're you've been living in never neverland a bit <laughs> yeah yeah, I mean, there's lots of other work goes on in between. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, very lucky. Very, very, very lucky. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm actually working on a book because I've had, there's nine episodes in my life where something happened that probably should have killed me. So ah. I'm writing this, I'm, I'm writing a novel called What Could Possibly Go Wrong? So I, I hope by the end of the year that'll be in print. That's super cool. I was, you know, you mentioned you were writing a book and I assumed it was based around adventure in your life, but it's a cool little way to tie things together. Yeah, and it's not such an autobiography. It's more of a story of just these nine different things that have happened around the world and what led to them and, you know, things like that. So, yeah, it's been an interesting project. I, I wrote the whole book and then gave it to an editor and he, he gave me some brutal feedback, and, <laughs> which, was, which was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Was that someone in New artist. Zealand? Yeah, yeah. Nice. I gave it to Craig Potton Publishing, and they gave me some good feedback. And then they put, and then I got hold of another editor, and he actually went through it and, mm-hmm. and just reorganised it and said, "Explain this more, get rid of that." And it's been really good. It's, yeah. Once you, once your ego takes the hit, it's actually good, good advice. That's fascinating with any kind of storytelling, isn't it? Because you, you can get emotionally attached to certain things based on your own experiences and what you remember and what you you want yeah. to focus on that you forget what it's like for other people and it's that's exactly the same for filmmaking for the festival you know you have to be brutal what you put in and what you leave out because a lot of things don't matter to other people only to you mm-hmm. when you're writing a book or making a film you, you you've got to think about are you making it for yourself or are you making it for someone else to enjoy so 
leave them wanting more, not wanting less. Just live your dreams, be wild and free. Ain't no need to explain them to me. Something that stands out for me is the fluid nature of Mark's life so far. It's a nice reminder that if you follow your adventure passions and keep learning, opportunities often come up. You might find yourself going down tangents you never knew possible, but when you look back, it seems obvious how all the dots connected. I want to give a shout out for Mark's guided adventures. His guided ski and snowboard adventures have a reputation for being well off the beaten track, safe and fun, with a little luxury along the way for good measure. He specialises in skiing in Antarctica, and has probably done more skiing down there than almost anybody. Check out kiwiskiguide.com to learn more about Mark and his guided trips. I've finally launched a website for this podcast and will be putting more energy into it over the next few months. Go to untamedaotearoa.com for more inspiration. I'll be publishing a short written blog alongside each episode with a selection of photos and relevant website links. There's also an online form you can fill out to let me know a good story or person to feature on the podcast. I'd love to hear from you. And if your school wants to get a selection of films from the New Zealand Mountain Film Festival for free, register online at fmc.org.nz slash mountainfilm. If you're enjoying the podcast, make sure you tell your mates about it. You can subscribe to Untamed Aotearoa on all the main podcast apps. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Catch you next time. Just live your dreams, be wild and free. Ain't no need to explain them to me. You can run to the mountains or run to the sea. Just live your dreams, be wild.